We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back, listeners. Those of you who have been joining us on this and first-time listeners, welcome. We're going to be going through Hebrews chapter 4 today. And um, this, this one can be kind of a perplexing chapter, though I think it has just a simple, general statement that the author is trying to get us to understand. Um, of what Christ has done for us. Um, but we're going to go through it. We're going to see what the text is stating. We're going to talk about some, some pretty straightforward things and we're going to hopefully get through this and, uh, and you will be informed and you will be, it'll be more, um, uh, evidenced and clear to you by the end of this. And so it goes on verse four or chapter four, verse one, he says, therefore. So as I talked about, even in chapter three in the very first word, which was also therefore. Um, and then as you go into chapter two, the very first word was therefore you see a flow that's going with all this stuff. So it's piggybacking off of each other. And the author is trying to get a, a, um, a flow of knowledge that's going through that you guys are to be taking. So if you are only listening to this one, you probably need to go back to chapter 3 to listen to what he says. And if you listen to chapter 3, you probably need to do chapter 2 to listen to what he says. And if you're going to do chapter 2, you need chapter 1. So um, if you get what I'm saying, listen to it all and read it all. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, the author, right off the bat here, on the heels of what he talked about in chapter 3, on the heels of this, he's saying, look guys, um, there, there's this concept of entering his rest that's still available. Right? Remember the, the famous passage in, in Matthew 11, I think it's 26 through like 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, you shall find rest for your souls. Um, the, the the rest that he has, we're going to find out in a little bit. I'm trying to, to figure out how I want to articulate this and, and explain it to you guys. The rest that he has for us is not a physical rest. This rest that he has is one for our souls, not our bodies. Um, if you're going to look through the Old Testament in comparison to the New Testament, you're going to find a lot of, of the, the, um, the shadows of the flesh or the physical um, to the substance of that which is the the um, uh, what would be the opposite of those things uh, the spiritual the heavenly you're going to have the distinction between the two most everything in the old was physical okay it was earthly and physical it wasn't heavenly right you transpose that into the new testament and you're going to find that there's going to be a parallel of the old physical to something that is going to be of the new spiritual. So for instance, there was a physical temple, right? Now, there's a spiritual temple, right? You have a physical priesthood, as 1 Peter 2 says, now there's a spiritual priesthood. 
You've got all these different things. You have the firstborn Adam that was of the flesh. He didn't have the spirit. Everything was there. And then you have the secondborn Jesus who was filled with the spirit. He was of the spirit. And so all this stuff is why in John 3 he says, That which is flesh is flesh. If you're born of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Going on into Corinthians. Um, But only that which is spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. And this is why this division between the old and the new is such a, uh, it's a, such a vital concept for us to understand. Is Because if you begin to live in a physical mindset and a natural mindset back from the old, you will not understand the things of God. This is why it talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him. The word of God, the things of God are spiritually discerned. And so if you don't understand the spiritual side of things, and in terms of what we're talking about, the Sabbath rest and a physical rest for your bodies, as opposed to the Sabbath rest and a spiritual rest for your soul, if you don't understand the distinction between that and what we actually are to live under, then you're going to have a lot of things wrong in your doctrine and your theology. And in this part he says, look, this... Rest, the spiritual rest that only Jesus gives to us, it still stands. It's still available. It's still right there. And he says, now we as the church should fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. He says, you're fooling yourselves. You might be deceiving yourselves. And there should come with a healthy dose of fear of understanding what that looks like. Just like in 2 Corinthians 5.10 um, Paul says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul understands, I know what it's going to be like to stand before him. And maybe he does. Maybe he's like, look, I don't even know what it's going to be like. I just know it ain't going to be pretty if I've done a lot of evil in my body. Paul says, I will give an account, he includes himself, of everything I've done in the body, whether it's good or evil. I will give an account before Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, I seek to persuade others. And here the author is doing the same thing. He says, look, I want to make sure that none of you have failed to reach this rest for your soul. That you're not out there trying to, to, um, to live under this physical ideology of a rest, of just, oh, I'll just keep the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, you just just every Friday night to Saturday night sundown because that's what it that's what it was in the in the the Torah. It was Friday night to Saturday night. Don't don't buy into this whole that it was Sunday. Um, I'm not condemning or judging anyone who who would try to keep a Sabbath on a Sunday, um, but just understand that that was actually changed back with Constantine. Roman Catholicism started up. That was changed back then in honor of Nimrod, the sun god, that they switched the Sabbath day into Sunday. Okay, the actual Jewish Sabbath was from Friday night until Saturday night at sundown. That was the time that they were to honor that day as holy. Now, Romans 14 says very clearly, it's not a matter of keeping a day holy. If you want to do that, great. Do it in honor of the Lord. Totally fine. I have no problem if somebody wants to observe a Sabbath day in honor of the Lord. But let me just tell you, if you're doing it as some means to fulfill righteousness under the law of Moses, and you think that you're doing it because Moses commanded you, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're weak in faith. That's what Romans 14 says. I personally consider every day holy. I live every day as my Sabbath because I live every day in Christ and find rest for my soul in Him. It's not a matter of keeping a day holy. I keep every day holy because I know what the cross has purchased for me. 
And it's no longer to be under the rule of the law of Moses. It's under the governance of Jesus Christ. And he is my rest. In fact, you want to look back in Matthew eleven twenty six to 28. He says, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden. That word for laden is a, is a Greek term that means burden with rites and ceremonial passages of a way to get to God. And he says, all you who are tired of doing this law of Moses, of having to get your access point, your way to God through it, come to me and I'll give you rest from that. Now, I could go on a whole big tangent on that one, but I'm not going to. What I do want us to understand is in verse 1, right off the bat, the author here is saying, look guys, you need to make sure that not only have you reached this rest in Christ that we have access to, but that you're living in it. Every day, every moment that you're living in the rest that we have for our souls where it's not up to you to have to work out the life of God. That is Christ in you. This is why John 15 talks about it. It says, if you're not abiding in him, you can do nothing. You, You can't do anything. Your job is to abide in him. And it's his, the nourishing sap of the grace of God that then fills into you simply because you're abiding in Him. It's not you trying to produce the fruit in your life on your own. It's you abiding in Him and letting Him produce the fruit in you. This is Christianity. This is the gospel. It's not about you trying to muster up enough strength to keep what God wants you to keep through Christ. It's about you abiding in Him and finding the rest for your soul so that you can actually then let the Spirit of Christ put in you and do in you what only He can do through you. And he says, so not only lest we um, have you failed to possibly reach this, I'm, I'm fearing for that, but I, I want to make sure that you're living in it now. And that's going to make sense because it's not just a past tense type thing. As we look down in, in uh, verse 11, listen to what he says in verse 11. Okay, Stay with me on this. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So the author is even saying, including himself, who I would hope this spirit-filled man who we have Hebrews as a book of, the, of um, spirit-inspired canon that we take as God's word. This guy includes himself in it. And he says, let us uh, therefore strive to enter that rest. It's a present tense thing just as much as it's a past tense thing. So don't think that this verse 1 is just a, a past tense proof of somebody's salvation, though it can be. It's also a present tense um, reality of that salvation being manifest in your life. And the author includes himself. So going on with that one, go listen to chapter 3 and you're going to find out some more on that concept. I'm not going to harp on that one too much. He says, for good news, gospel, came to us just as good news or the gospel to them. Talking about the Old Testament ones from chapter 3 that he says, the ones who God was provoked with for 40 years in the wilderness and then says, they shall never enter my rest. That's who he's talking about. He says, good news came to them too. They got delivered from Egypt. They received the law from God. Through the hands of Moses. They saw the miracles and the workings of God on their behalf. They were part of it. They were the people of God. They had good news that came to them. Just as we also have good news given to us. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith. With those who listened. Believe it. Let me just tell you right now. You need to find some people in your life. If you don't have it right now. Who you can find a congruency or a uniting with 
in faith. Not just a, oh uh, yeah, yeah, hey, I believe in Jesus. I believe Him as Lord and Savior in my life. I'm talking about people who are walking in faith. People who are making decisions in their life that are congruent with a life of faith. You need to find people like that and unite with them because that is the only way the gospel will actually have benefit in your life. Did you hear what this said? For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The gospel will have very little effect in your life if you are not united with other people who walk by faith. And again, I'm not just talking about people <clears throat> who say Jesus is Lord of their life. I'm talking about people who are out there making radical choices for the glory of God and for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about people who are giving away their possessions. Um, I'm talking about people who are <clears throat> making life-altering choices for the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. People who are letting go of the things of this world. People who are choosing to rather be considered, um, what does he talk, talk about even with Moses here? Um, oh man, now I can't find it. It's in, chat, it's, it, it's in Hebrews. Um, we're talking to Moses, he considered it to be a greater wealth to be listed with the people of God than with the, than with the people in this world and have prosperity. You need to find people like that who are united with you in faith and who are making radical choices for the glory of God. That's when the gospel power will actually have power in you and through you. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he says. So you come into this rest of Jesus Christ, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface it with of Jesus Christ, not of what Moses promised or even what Joshua promised, because even Joshua couldn't give the people rest. He brought them into this promised land. But it was a physical promised land. It was an illustration of what was to come. This is why Jesus' name, it's why he was even named Jesus that's why he was given that name above all names. It wasn't something in which Mary and Joseph just said, oh, let's name him Jesus. No, Gabriel told him his name is to be Jesus. They named him Jesus because he was a, a, uh, the substance of what Joshua was to be, but couldn't. Yeshua. Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yeshua. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. And Joshua brought them over the Jordan, which means the descender, and he brought them into this promised land, and yet the people still never had rest. Jesus brings the descender into our life, the one who descends from heaven, the Holy Spirit. He brings us into this promised land, which was the land of rest, a land of dominion. As he says in Joshua chapter 1, when, when God says, look, everywhere that your foot treads, you will have dominion and authority. That's what we do have through Jesus Christ but that Joshua can never give the people. So I, I kind of uh, put the cart before the horse a little bit as we get into that, but I want you to understand that rest that he's talking about is not a Sabbath rest for the physical rest of our bodies. It is a spiritual rest for our souls. And not only that spiritual rest, but what accompanies that is the authority of being in this promised land. It's not something we're waiting for, guys. 
This is a thing we've got to wrap our mind around. It's not a physical shadow of a physical thing. It is a physical shadow that points to a spiritual reality that is in the here and now. We are the temple of God. It's not we're waiting to be the temple of God. We are the temple of God in the here and now. And what we are, as Hebrews 3 talked about, is not what we will be. We're being built into that house, right? But we are part of it as a living stone in the temple of God. We're not waiting for a temple to be built. I I can go through and show you in Ezekiel as I go through and map out the temple that Ezekiel talks about where the glory of God is going to rest. That temple is in the exact formation of a cross. And exactly where the, the, the blood was supposed to be put by the priesthood was where the hands and the side of Jesus and the head would have been on that cross. And this was done years before a crucifixion was even something thought about by the Romans. The temple is an exact imprint of the cross of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it even says that the blood and water flows from right where the side of Jesus would have been. Guys, the temple that we are a part of is already a reality. It just has to be taken by faith. And so we cannot miss this. He goes on and he says, As I swore my wrath, I shall not enter my rest, meaning the people of God who chose to disobey and harden their hearts against him. And they continued in that until a point where they reached an unbelief, which is what he talks about at the end of very chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It was their apostia. It was their lack of faith or their want of faith because they had abandoned the faith of the things that they saw God do in their life. And their disobedience led them to this place. It didn't cause it. It led them to to the place of what did cause it. And it was the abandoning of the faith of God Almighty of being the governance of their life. He says, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now this this word, in in my estimation, I'm not a Greek scholar and the guys who put together the ESV translation as many many other translations are very smart men and so I'm not necessarily trying to question the word choice that they used here. However, as I've studied through this word just briefly, and I've looked at this word that's used in the Greek, and I've looked at other instances that this word was used all throughout Scripture, um, I don't see many times where finished is actually an appropriate word. What I see in this word is while it can be um, brought to be or accomplished, it, it can have a sense to that one, it seems more fitting to me to say that it was evidenced or revealed. And to kind of show you that, I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 1 and 19 through 20. Um, That kind of gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. Instead of, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, it seems to be more so, although his works were revealed or evidenced from the foundation of the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1, 19 through 20. He says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It's saying that from the beginning of time, from the beginning of the foundation of this world, the creation of this world, who God is and what his plan is, is clearly revealed. 
Now, what does that mean for us when he says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world? I'm going to tell you, um, this whole passage is about a day. All right, It talks about the day of, of salvation or the day of the Sabbath. Okay, When God made, and stay with me on this one, when God, um, I, I wasn't, and the reason I say that is because I wasn't necessarily going to go here, but I feel like the Spirit's prompted me to go into this, so I'm just trusting that He's going to clearly convey this to you. Um, when God made the earth, it was six days, we know the story, six days that God did what He did in creating life and creating this world, creating the animals, creating man, creating the vegetation, the trees, all this stuff. Because before that, it was void. It was darkness. There was nothing. Only the Spirit hovered over the waters. And then God, through His Word, He breathed or He um, He spoke these things into existence. God did it. Man did nothing. Let me ref- let me state that again. God accomplished it. Man did nothing. We had some charges. We had some you know authority that He gave to us. But in creating it, man did nothing. And then on the seventh day, after God had done everything to bring about life, this opportunity for man to live in this life that God has done, he rested on that seventh day. And that seventh day then, he says he's made holy. Now Jesus and John says that him and his father have been working from that day on. They never took another Sabbath. They never took another day of rest. They've been working on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, I want you to see this. Because I believe that that seventh day is a foreshadow or even a prophecy of what was to come through Christ. That Christ is our seventh day rest. It's the day that we enter into to find rest. That God has done everything that was needed for us, for mankind to come into the life that God had. But no longer a physical life of creation, but the spiritual life of Christ. God accomplished it. He did it all. And he actually made it clearly perceived in what he accomplished from the foundation of the world so that we could look back and say, whoa, God knew all along that he wanted to send Jesus. That was his predestined plan from the beginning. Everything that he did was to bring about Christ. Now listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, pertaining to this day. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Who's our helper? Who's the one who has helped us in this day of salvation? It's the Holy Spirit, the helper that God gives to us. Listen to what he says. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I believe that seventh day was a prophecy or a foreshadow of Christ and his coming. And that we in Christ enter into that seventh day to find rest for our souls. Not for our bodies, but for our souls. And so this word, word for finished, I believe, is one that talks about it's, in, it's something that was evidenced or revealed from the foundation of the world. And he goes on, he says in verse 4, I hope that made sense to you guys at the very least. It sparked something in you to go study more. In verse 4 he says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. What did I just talk about, right? I just talked about the seventh day in which God rested from his works. Excuse me. 
Because the first six days he created everything that was needed for life. Man did nothing. And in the same way in this gospel, the good news that was given to us, God did everything to create life through Christ. We did nothing. None of us were worthy enough to be like, yeah, we earned it. God accomplished everything that was needed. He spoke light into the darkness. He brought about Christ and the life of Christ. And in the seventh day, we come into that rest. He says this, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today. Saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This can be a confusing passage. But he says it three times. They shall not enter my rest. And what the author is trying to tell us is that David later on quoted something after that had already been accomplished. Meaning that there was a day coming. A day that we would understand that was clearly evidenced from the foundation of the world that God was providing this rest for us, not in a Sabbath rest for our bodies, but in a Sabbath rest for our souls. And it was going to be identified through Jesus Christ. And he testified to that to say, look, David, after Joshua, after the command was given to Joshua that you would enter my rest, and they couldn't do it. He said through David, forecasting or foreshadowing that there was still a day to come. He wasn't looking behind. God's not somebody who looks behind. He's one who presses forward. And we should be too. That's why Paul says that I press forward. Forgetting the things that lie behind. That's not what I'm concerned about. I'm moving forward. And in this one he says, This day that I'm talking about is the day of Christ, the salvific rest for your souls that He and only He was going to be bringing. He says it still remains. I don't know where you're at and, and, and where the state of your soul is in listening to this, but let me just tell you, if you've never entered this Sabbath rest, if you've never felt that rest for your souls where it's like, man, it's... It feels so good to have this burden being carried with me and not alone. He says in Galatians 6, 2, check this out. He says, um, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I think that that was even foreshadowed on the, um, the Rio de la Rosa. Whenever is that mile and a half trek that Jesus had to make through Rome or not through Rome, through Jerusalem to get to Golgotha, the place of the skull, that half the way he carried this beam, you know, from my studies on it, it was, it was probably not that he carried an actual cross because it would have been roughly about 300 pounds from, from my studies on this this 15 foot cross of solid wood was probably about 300 pounds. Instead what the Romans would oftentimes do is they would strap the cross piece, the horizontal piece, they would, they would strap that to them to where they would have to carry that and that was roughly about 75 pounds. Jesus carried it half the way and then he gave out 
And I don't believe that it was that he didn't have the strength to do it. I think he could have relied on the grace of God to supernaturally get there. But I think that there was something subtle for us to be able to look at and glean from. And instead, the guards shouted out for somebody else to come and carry a, a man to come and carry the cross with the Son of God. To bear his burden as he bore the man's burden as well. And here's the cool thing, is that when... When this guy, um, was it Simon of Cyrene? Now I'm drawing a blank as to what it was. I think it was Simon of Cyrene. They come and they, they, they get him to, to carry this cross. As he is carrying this cross with Christ, helping to bear the weight, the burden of Christ, and Christ bearing the burden as well as with Simon, the blood that was surely on this cross transferred to Simon. I really hope you're getting the imagery of what this is. Is because as we walk with that cross, as Luke 9, 23 through 24 says, when he says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow after me. We have a cross to bear until the end. And as we bear that cross, the blood of the Son of God is put on us to cover us. And not only... Do we bear the burden? Because Jesus has burdens right now. Even in heaven, even as he's conquered, even as he sits at the right hand of the Father. I believe that the Spirit and that Christ, that they carry a burden for the church, for the world. And as we carry that cross, we share one another's burdens. Or as Galatians 6.2 says, we bear one another's burdens. And we do it to the end. And in so doing, we fulfill the law of Christ. You know, I, I look at this concept of what he's talking about here. Is, he says, you're going to come into my rest. And it's not that you're not going to have troubles. It's not that you're not going to have tribulations. You will have tribulations. It's not that you won't be persecuted. You will be persecuted. But the difference is, is that you don't bear it alone. You have the Son of God. Who bears it with you. And not only the Son of God, but the body of Christ is supposed to be bearing it with you. This is why it talks about being united with those of faith. Not just good people. Not just people who claim Jesus as Lord. I'm talking about people who walk in faith. Truly, radical steps of faith. Surround yourself with those people. Bear one another's burdens. This is one of the benefit of the body. You don't do it alone. We weren't intended to do it alone. And so this, this concept is, he says, look, David spoke of a day after Joshua, showing that there was a time to come. And Joshua, he couldn't give the people rest. That's literally what he says. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Meaning of what David quoted. He said that there, there wouldn't have been another day even referenced if Joshua could give them rest. Joshua couldn't give them rest because he wasn't worthy. He was a great man. A lot of good things that he did, but he wasn't worthy. He wasn't Christ. Christ came and he gave rest for our souls, not our bodies, which is what God was looking for all along. And the Sabbath was simply just a prophecy of what was to come. It was a shadow, as Colossians would put it. It was a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says, if we've entered God's rest, then we also rest from his works as God did. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It's an interesting statement that he says, strive to rest. And it's, it's, it's interesting because the author includes himself in this. And he says, look, I know that I've come into this rest. But he says, I also have to on a daily basis make sure that I'm doing everything that I can, that I know to do to make sure that I abide in that rest. So this, this chapter in chapter 4 is not one that's just talking about make sure that you're actually really saved. It's make sure that you're abiding in salvation. It's part of what we're supposed to put on for the armory, guys. Ephesians chapter, and, I, and if this is getting really deep for you and I'm just all over the place and you're like, man, I'm still on milk, Dwight. You're, you're teaching things that like my head cannot wrap around. It will eventually because the Spirit of God abides in you if you're really in Him. It might not right now, but as you continue to seek, as you can continue to study, this will all make sense. Eventually. There is something you can glean from this, something you can reap from this. I guarantee you, because the word of God is living as we're about to get into. But the reality is, is that part of the armory we're supposed to put on in Ephesians 6 is the helmet of salvation. It's to keep our mind fixed on that salvation and the object of our salvation. And so this isn't just a passage that says, hey, you know, you need to make sure that you really are saved. That is a true statement. You need to make sure that you have entered this rest. But if you have entered that rest, as Galatians 5.24 says, that the one who belongs to him has crucified their flesh with his desires and passions. It means at some point in your life, you've had to lay down you and ask Christ to take the throne. If you have not done that, you are not saved. That you just Don't think that because you asked the Lord into your heart at the age... Eight, and he's like, I want you to save me from hell. Don't think that you're saved. If you have not laid down your life and given it to the control of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he causes to dwell within us, then you have not been saved yet. So that's a true thing. You've got to get right. But this chapter is not just the author trying to prove that. The author is trying to state, you need to not only make sure that you are saved, but that you are abiding in that salvation. As a helmet for your head that protects you from the things of this world. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Notice what he says. He says, look, I'm not saying you need to strive to make sure that you are actually saved so that you don't fall. He says, no, 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 no. I'm including myself. I also need to strive to make sure I'm abiding in that salvation, doing what I'm supposed to do in the contractual terms that God has made with me through Christ. That I'm being who I need to be, that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, lest I too fall by the same sort of disobedience that they did. As I quoted earlier in 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says the same thing. I keep my body under control. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm striving to stay in that rest that I have provided for me in Christ. I'm abiding in my salvation by being who I'm needing to be. Lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. Same thing. He goes on and he says in verse 12, For the word of God is living and is active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen carefully, guys. The Word of God is not dead. 
The word of God is not, um, it's not stagnant. It's living. It's active. And it will pierce to the division of things that are beyond physical. Because it's not a physical sword. The word of God should pierce your soul. The word of God should be something of which we take seriously when it gives us the warning passages in Hebrews chapter 3 and even in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm keeping it just in Hebrews because that's the book we're studying. The author is trying to bring about them. Not only can we trust the word of God for the promises of God, but we can trust the word of God for the judgments of God, even on his own people. Because Hebrews 10, uh, 30, I think is, is what it is, where it says, well, let me just turn to it. Make sure that I've got the right passage for you guys. In Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse, yeah, 30. For, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But we can rest assured that the promises of God are sure and trustworthy because the word of God is living and active. But it goes both ways. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let me just tell you, if you really know the Word of God, and you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, you can actually do the same exact thing. You can discern the thoughts and the intentions of a heart. I know a lot of times people are like, well, I can't know exactly what you're thinking or what your motivation is. You can actually. If you're in tune with the Spirit and you know the Word of God, you can. The Word of God will reveal and discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Not you, we. Because I cannot emphasize it enough. Peter talks about it, I think it's in 2 Peter 1, where he says, I intend to always remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I remind them to you all the time, so that after my departure at any time, you can recall them. Because I'm going to continue to point out all the times that it says we. Because it is foundational to understanding contextually the truth that the author is stating. If he were to say, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom you must give an account, then he would be excluding himself. But instead, he includes himself for the fact that the word of God is going to judge us in the end. For what we did in the body, whether good or evil. When the books are opened in the end, I believe those books are to be the righteous standard of what we are to look like in Christ. And we will be judged according to that. The author includes himself. We will give an account. Do not buy into the heresy that all your past, present, future sins are forgiven. And that when God looks at you, all he sees is the blood of Christ. That is not true. What did he just say? No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees. He sees. And some sins, they might go with you to your death. And you, no man on this earth might ever know what you did. But God does. But there's good news. There's good news that comes with that. Don't think that you're beyond repair. Don't think that that sin that you have, that it's um, irreconcilable before God. He says, since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us 
hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, look, the word of God is serious. These warnings are true. They will take place if you don't change. But I want you to understand something. You have a faithful high priest who now understands what we go through as mankind because he was made like us in every respect. Go back and listen to my Hebrews chapter 2 podcast on this one because I'm not going to go in depth on it right now. But what I will say is he was made like us in every respect. He had no advantage over us. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 says. He was tempted in every way that we were tempted. He even suffered in his temptation. So he knows what you're going through. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. But his sympathy to your weaknesses does not excuse your weaknesses. You will give an account for the things you've done in the body, whether good or evil. You will stand before the judgment seat of God, as Romans 14, 12 says. Every person on this earth will stand before the judgment seat of God. The thing that distinguishes between whether or not you go to heaven or hell is not how that verdict comes out. I want you to listen closely to me. It is not on how it turns out as to how much good or how much bad you've done. What it does turn out is whether your name is written in that book of life. That, that's, that's the whole concept. Now what you do can have some implication on that. This is what he talks about in, in Revelation, um, I think it's in chapter 2. Um, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Bear with me. I thought I knew where it was. I thought it was on the right page. Oh, there it is. It's on the left page in chapter 3, verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. To me, that shows that it is possible that a name could be blotted out of the book of life. And we're not going to get into that too much. Just know, understand, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, that would be apostasy. The w- whether or not you get into heaven or hell is not based on how the verdict cur- turns out of giving an account for what you've done in the body, whether good or evil. It's whether or not your name is in that book of life in the end. And we have a faithful high priest who, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but you must confess them to be forgiven of them. You must repent, as Matthew 3, it says, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This chapter is a warning passage to not only make sure that you are saved, that you've entered that rest, but I believe the overarching theme of this, of this chapter is the author is trying to say, if you've entered that rest, make sure that you abide in that rest. That you abide in that salvation that we've been given through Christ, that seventh day that has now been evidenced to us today. 
It's now been revealed. It's all been, it was all done from the foundation of the world. God's plan was always to send Christ. He was his predestined plan. And that seventh day has now been revealed in the good news, the message that we have been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we now have access to come to God and find rest for our souls. And our job is to strive to make sure that we abide in that salvation, that we abide in that rest, so that we don't disobey like the ones of old and fall away into unfaithful living. We have a faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses Because he was tempted just like us and he was made just like us in every respect. He had no advantage over us. So he can sympathize with what you're going through. So as he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The very thing that's going to empower you and enable you to overcome sin. It's not to over overlook it. Don't misunderstand what grace truly is. It is not something in which it just simply overlooks your sin. That would be considered mercy. It's that which empowers you to overcome that vice or that sin in your life that you don't think that you can. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You can't. He can. And it's the grace that He gives that affords you the ability and the opportunity to overcome or to conquer as he did. And you have a throne of it. You have a throne that could just saturate your soul. But understand this. The word of God is living and active. And both the promises of God for your good and the rewards for your faithfulness are true just as much as the promises of God The judgments, if you will, for your unfaithfulness and disobedience. And don't go to Romans 8, 1, where it says, Therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because that verse goes on to say, For those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And as I quoted before, Romans 6, 7-10 through talks about it. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. And we will reap if we do not give up. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't think that you can sow to the flesh and that you won't be condemned. Because even Peter stood condemned when Paul says that he stood condemned. A woman who abandons her former vow of celibacy after being a widow. It says that she brings condemnation under her. In James 5 when it talks about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. It says if you don't do that you bring about condemnation for yourself. If you walk according to the flesh you will put yourself under condemnation. But if you walk according to the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And so while all this stuff, I could go round and round and I could take these um, many tunnels through the caverns of truth to lead you into a lot of various areas of truth, I want to keep it simple. The day that we have is no longer a day in which he says, according to the law of Moses, you need to observe this Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. If you do it, great, but make sure you're doing it to honor the Lord, not because Moses told you to. But let me just tell you, you don't have to. Because Jesus has given us rest for our souls and it's not to then be manifest through keeping a seventh day rest for our bodies. It's manifest for us living every single day of our life in the freedom that God affords to us through Christ. 
to find rest, to know that we don't do this alone. We don't live out this life alone. And we can rest in abiding as the branch does into the vine. We can rest in knowing that as we abide in Him, the nourishing sap produces the fruit of the Spirit within us. And it's not something that I necessarily do. It's something He does in me. And I have that because of that seventh day rest that was evidenced in the beginning, now manifest through Christ now. And it still stands for us today. Y'all be blessed.